right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 28 through 31 this morning. That is Mark 13, 28 through 31. And obviously we are continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. And particularly we are in our seventh week studying the Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13. Uh, and this morning we find ourselves coming near to the end of the Olivet Discourse. Uh, we are now in our final week of the portion of the discourse that has to do with the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Uh, and, and, and we've been seeing how the language of our Lord throughout this chapter has to do with the time leading up to and culminating in the destruction of that city and temple during the Jewish war with Rome. Um, ne next week, we will see our Lord transition to a different topic, though, Starting in verse 32, Jesus is going to begin to speak of his bodily return at the end of the age, right, or at the end of history. Uh, but for now, we're still focused on the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, and we come now to our Lord's conclusion regarding that topic. And these concluding words about the destruction of the temple, I, I think that there are two glorious things our Lord Jesus affirms that are a blessing for us to consider. And I hope to draw them out to you this morning from the text. And here they are. I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. Here are the two things I'm driving at. One, Jesus gives a final affirmation that the kingdom of God will grow and spread with Jesus as its king. And two, Jesus affirms that his words will never, ever pass away. These are very encouraging things for us to meditate upon this morning, and may God bless us as we consider them. Uh, so with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 31. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together under your command on your day as your people to worship and be blessed by you. We thank you for your word that is a true and certain word to us. God, we love the book. It is the book of books. And we want to hear from you. And we want to understand what you have revealed in the book. And so we ask that you would bless us with a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit this morning. Send him upon us today so that by his mighty working, we might understand and receive your word with all faith and obedience and love. Grant us to mark, learn, and inwardly digest the word of God to the salvation of our souls. Have mercy on us and bless us for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Um, so l let's begin by making sure that we have the general context of the discourse in our minds. Um, our, our Lord has been prophesying the destruction of the temple and the theological and historical results that will follow from its destruction. And he's been doing this from verse 5, or rather beginning in verse 5 and going all the way through verse 27. Um, and now, as I said in the introduction, Jesus is concluding the part of the discourse concerning those subjects. 
And for the sake of establishing the context further, I'm going to read the entire discourse up to this point this morning. Um, so please follow along with me in your Bibles. It's not going to be on the projector. We're going to read Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 31. And as I read, try to recall the various ways that Jesus' words were fulfilled in the first century. And if you've not been here or you've not heard all the sermons up to this point, let me know. I can get you copies of that or you can listen to them online. But for those of you who have been here, uh, try to recall all the ways that these words were fulfilled in the first century. And I think that will be helpful to you in the sermon. Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
I just wanted to read all that so you, we have the context in our mind, what Jesus has been saying. So let's get down to our text, verses 28 through 31. To begin his conclusion concerning the destruction of the temple and the results that will follow, Jesus gives us a lesson from nature. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. He's giving an object lesson here, right? Jesus does this from time to time in his teaching. Uh, he, he likes to take things from nature and from everyday life and use them in order to drive home spiritual truths. He does this in his parables often. He does this, again, with just object lessons sometimes. And the object lesson here is nature, right? It's, it's simply a natural fact. When you see the fig tree's branches become tender and put out leaves, you know that summer is near, right? And, and, and this goes for every tree that sheds its leaves once a year and starts to grow them back in the spring, right? We see this all the time. That's why we like the fall, right? It's the most simple name for a season. Why do you call it fall? Because the leaves fall down, right? <laughs> it, it always makes me giggle. But we see this every year. When the leaves start budding from the branches in spring, what do you know is about to come? Summer. Summer is near at hand. Summer is not far away at all. Once you start seeing things turning green, you start seeing leaves coming out, summer is coming, and it's a beautiful sight to behold. And Jesus says there's a lesson to learn from this. There's a lesson to be learned from the fig tree. So Jesus' disciples are supposed to take the concept of being able to judge that summer is near by seeing the trees budding and apply that concept to what Jesus has said throughout the discourse. Here's the application of the principle. In the same way that you know summer is coming when the fig tree produces leaves, when the disciples see these things taking place, verse 29, when the disciples see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. So just as there are signs that summer is coming, so also the things that Jesus has mentioned in the discourse serve as signs to his disciples in the first century and also to us today looking back on history. Right? But what are these things? Verse 29 says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. Well, what things are Jesus referring to? Matthew's parallel helps at this point. Uh, in Matthew's record of the Olivet Discourse, in chapter 24, verse 33, Matthew records Jesus saying, When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So all these things. I would take this to mean that Jesus is referring to everything he has mentioned in verses 5 through 23. Maybe some of you are saying, what about verses 24 through 27? Uh, those verses are the theological and historical results of the destruction of Jerusalem. They are not signs, right? They're, they're the results. They're describing results. They themselves are not the signs. Um, so Jesus is taking, or rather, he's talking about all of his predictions that he's made in verses 5 through 23. They serve as signs, or when taken together, they serve as one big sign of what is to come. Uh, when they see the first rumblings, of what Jesus has predicted, they can know that something is near, right? They can know that Jesus' words are coming to pass. And as more and more unfolds throughout the decades after Jesus ascends to heaven, and as it climaxes in the abomination of desolation, verse 14, they can know that what Jesus had said would come to pass, namely the fall of Jerusalem and the spreading of his kingdom, is indeed happening before their very eyes. When they see his words coming true, they can know that the time of destruction and gospel growth is closer and closer. And what has Jesus prophesied? 
What are these things, is why I read the whole chapter to you, or rather, most of the chapter. What are these things that they are to see and recognize as signs? Briefly, they will see a rise in number of false Christs and false prophets. They will hear of wars and rumors of wars throughout the empire. They will hear of and, and see earthquakes, famines, and pestilences throughout the empire. They will see and experience the persecution of the infant church at the hands of the Jews and Roman government. They will witness the gospel being proclaimed throughout all the known world, that is the Roman Empire, and they will see the abomination of desolation in the holy place. And again, I remind you, Luke chapter 21, verse 20, tells us that this is the Roman armies, right? The abomination of desolation is the Roman armies that would surround Jerusalem. That's the abomination. And as they see these things taking place, they are to know that he is near at the very gates, Right? Uh, or I would say this, they will know that either someone or something is near. Right? So just as the budding of the leaves of the fig tree signal that summer is near, so also when they see all these things taking place, they know that something else is near. And that leads us to a question. What was near? Right? Always ask questions when you read the Bible. What was near? Was he near or was it near? And you say, why are you saying it? The ESV, our text says he is near. Uh, there's a translational issue here that uh, you guys need to know about. At verse 29, uh, your heads are going down. Good, look at the book. Good. In verse 29, uh, some good translations, like our ESV, I love the English Standard Version, uh, some good translations render the phrase, he is near, and others render it, it is near. And actually, in some, in some Bibles, there's a translation note at the, at the bottom of the page to let you know this could be he or it. And how we understand this phrase will affect our understanding of the verse. And that's why I want to talk about it for a second. Uh, it's good for you to know that at this point, the Greek phrase is not masculine. It's not. And because of that, it does not have to be rendered he. The underlying Greek could legitimately be rendered he is near, she is near, or it is near. Right? That's just, that's just how it works. And the way to figure out how you should translate it or how you should understand what's being said um, is to consider the context in which you find the phrase. That's how most language works. Context determines meaning. Um, so again, context determines how we should understand the phrase. And I believe, so there's a payoff here. Here we go. I believe that since the context is not the bodily return of Christ, but is instead the impending destruction of Jerusalem and the growth of the gospel that will follow, we should be understanding this verse to say, you know that it is near at the very gates. I personally think that um, to translate it, he is near, is to make an unwarranted assumption that Jesus is predicting his bodily return in this verse, and that is nowhere in the context at all. At least not yet. The transition's coming in verse 32, but it's not in the context yet. Uh, and if you think, man, this sounds weird, that's not what our Bible says, just know this. Some translations that read, it is near, are the King James Version, the NIV, the New King James Version, the Tyndale Bible, and some lesser-known translations. Okay, I won't list them all here because you've probably never read them. Um, I, I haven't read many of them. Um, so again, I'm, I'm not on an island here. Many good translations read it, it is near. But this leads us to another question. What is it? What is it that is near? Some interpreters say that it is a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. 
right? So when the disciples see the signs coming to pass, they can know that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And that's a compelling interpretation, isn't it? It fits the context, right? It fits the passage. It makes sense when you see these things happening. You know Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. That fits with the question they asked in verse uh, 4, right? So this, it makes sense. But there's a parallel passage in Luke's gospel that helps us understand even better what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, in Luke chapter 21, verse 31, Luke tells us explicitly what Jesus is talking about. Luke records this. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. So it, in Mark's record, you know that it is near, is the kingdom of God is near. It's good at this point to refresh ourselves on what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is God's reign through his Messiah. I think that's maybe the simplest way to put it. The kingdom of God is God's reign through his Messiah. Again, I I say it that way because God always reigns over all things. But the kingdom is something new in history. The kingdom of God is something that did not always exist. Right, so the kingdom of God is God's reign through his Messiah or through his Christ. It's what God had promised throughout the Old Testament and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. It's a spiritual kingdom, first and foremost, where God provides salvation through the Messiah, Jesus. And those who believe upon Jesus are made citizens of this kingdom, citizens of this holy nation, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2. This kingdom is a kingdom where God reigns in the hearts of his people and over his people through the king of the kingdom, Jesus. It's a spiritual kingdom, right? Like Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. But I want to be clear, it's not a spiritual kingdom with no earthly results. That's foolishness, right? That's foolishness. Changed people who have been bought by the blood of Christ and regenerated and made new and brought into this kingdom, changed people living in the world will make an impact in the world in which they live. As they live out the lordship of Christ in the world, it will make an impact. So it's a spiritual kingdom, but it's a spiritual kingdom that will have results in the world. And it's a spiritual kingdom that God promised would fill the whole earth. Think of Daniel 2. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God is a a mountain that begins as a tiny pebble that smashes all the other kingdoms of the world and grows into a great mountain that fills the entire earth. The kingdom of God is God's rule over the whole world through his Christ reigning over his people. So Jesus says that when they see these things that he predicted coming to pass, they will know that God's reign over the world through him has come near. This is glorious stuff. This is glorious. And at this point, maybe some of you are saying to yourself, like I did, but I thought the kingdom of God had already come in some sense, right? And I thought that the kingdom doesn't really fully come until the end of the age. And I would say, you're right. You're right. Bear with me. The kingdom began, it came in seed form, right? Think the parable of the mustard seed tiny seed. The kingdom of God is a tiny seed that eventually grows and takes over the whole garden. The kingdom of God came in seed form when Jesus came. 
You say, where do I get that? The Gospel of Mark, of course. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. You say, what's at hand mean? How would you use it? At hand means near. It doesn't mean thousands of years away, right? That would make language mean nothing. If the kingdom is at hand, it means it's near. And Jesus could say the kingdom was near because he was near. Because he had come into the world. Because he was establishing his kingdom. Jesus also affirms this in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, when interacting with the Pharisees, I believe it was. He says, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He says the kingdom was was there right then as he spoke to them. Jesus affirmed that the kingdom was present, and it was present, why? Because the king was present. The kingdom had come because the king had come. God's reign through Christ began to be established when Jesus came to earth, particularly whenever he began his public ministry. But Jesus also mentioned how some of the disciples would live to see the kingdom come with power, didn't he? Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus says there are people living then when he spoke, and he was speaking to his disciples. He says some of you will live, which means not all of them would live to see this, but some of you will live to see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I think Jesus there was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. Why would I say that? Because Jesus in Mark 13, 26 tells us that the destruction of Jerusalem was proof that he had come into his kingdom with great power and glory. So here in verse 29, to sum all this up, Jesus is saying this. When they see his words coming to pass, here's the payoff. When they see his words coming to pass, they will know that God's reign is about to be manifested more clearly with its reigning king in great power and glory demonstrated in the judgment of the Jews and the spread of the gospel that would follow. Truly, when the disciples saw Jesus' words coming to pass, they would know for certain that the kingdom of God had come. They would know for certain that the kingdom had come. They would know as they see the Jews being judged, they would know for certain that Jesus is king because they're being judged for rejecting him. They would know for certain by watching the destruction of Jerusalem, they would know for certain that all men everywhere must repent and believe on Christ or perish under his wrath. The Jews were an example of this. And they would know for certain that God's reign through Christ was going to burst forth into the whole world from one end of heaven to the other, to the four corners, until the kingdom of God fills the whole earth, as Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. They'll know that that kingdom has come. What a blessing for his disciples to consider this. As I was reflecting on this, this struck me. 
they already believed that Jesus is the Messiah and King and Lord and Savior and God overall. They already believed that. And they would believe and preach that in the years prior to Jerusalem's fall, wouldn't they? After Christ, right after Christ's uh, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, they, they began to preach. For decades, they would preach this message. And Jesus then, even though they already believed and they would continue to believe, he gives them a sign anyway to encourage their believing hearts even more. This is grace upon grace. Jesus wants the destruction of Jerusalem to be a sign to encourage the faith of his people. might sound weird, but the destruction of Jerusalem was meant to encourage his people. He wants his disciples to see everything happening and know that he is king and that he is reigning and that his kingdom will remain forever and conquer the earth. Likewise for us, What's this have to do with us? Hear me out. As we look back on history and see the judgment of Christ against the Jews for rejecting him, we should be encouraged in the faith. We should be given yet another assurance that Jesus Christ is Lord. As we look back on the destruction of Jerusalem, we're given yet another assurance that Jesus Christ's reign shall be realized in all the earth. The disciples would know and see that the kingdom was near, and likewise we look back and can see that the kingdom has come, and we are living in the age of fulfillment. I need to make a, a, a clarification here. I am not saying that the kingdom of God will ever be fully realized in history. I don't believe that. The full consummation of the kingdom, that is the kingdom in its full strength and beauty and glory, will not come until the king comes again himself. But nevertheless, the kingdom has come, and it is growing, and it will continue to grow. And the fall of Jerusalem is proof. Our king reigns. The kingdom has come, and it is glorious in our eyes. Consider this. Through judgment, glory has been revealed. Through judgment, glory has been revealed. The judgment of the Jews, as one commentator said, the metaphorical death of the nation brought life to the world, didn't it? The kingdom of God has come, and it exploded after the Jews were judged. And this reminds us of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, verses 11 and 12 in particular. There he says that through their, referring to the Jews, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. He also says their failure means riches for the Gentiles. The rejection of Israel, the sins of the Jews, their rejection of Jesus has meant riches for the world. We have benefited. Everyone in this room, to my knowledge, or at least most of us are Gentiles. We've benefited. The kingdom of God has gone out, and Christ's messengers, his angels, have went throughout all the world declaring the gospel of the kingdom, and the elect are being brought in. The kingdom of God has grown. It's been displayed in great power and glory from that day until now. Just think for a moment with me how many Christians there have been. I don't just mean in name, but true believers in the last 1,900 years compared to how small the infant church was. Consider that for a moment. Tell me the kingdom hasn't come in great power and glory. Tell me Christ isn't reigning the kingdom indeed has come, and it's growing and will continue to grow because Jesus Christ, the King, reigns over the world and blesses his church. 
Christian, I want to encourage you this morning. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Jesus is king. Salvation is found only through faith in him. And he has indeed purchased your redemption by his blood. And he has numbered you among his people. So look at the judgment on the Jews. And as odd as it may sound, be encouraged by knowing that it is a proof that Jesus is king and that his kingdom has come. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And a kingdom of which you are a member by the grace of God. But now we're going to turn to verse 30 and look at our beloved time text. Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I can see it on some of your faces maybe. Uh, I've spent a lot of time explaining this verse throughout this series, right? Especially the first sermon. Megan's nodding her head. She doesn't want me to do it again. And I'm not going to do it again. Uh, I've explained it multiple times throughout this chapter Um, So I'm not going to do it again now. Just let me simply say that in verse 4, the disciples asked, when? When would the temple be destroyed? And Jesus' answer is found in verse 30. Within the generation then living, the temple would come down. Before the people of the generation Jesus was speaking to would perish from the earth, the temple would be destroyed. And brothers and sisters, it happened exactly like Jesus said it would. Are we shocked? Should we be shocked? Absolutely not. Just as he said it would happen, it took place. Within the lifetime of that generation, in the year 70 AD, Rome came against Jerusalem and burned it to the ground. In verse 2, Jesus said, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And it is a fact of history that the Romans completely razed the entire temple to the ground. You want to hear how literally this was fulfilled? They set fire to the temple. They burned everything that would burn. And in doing so, there was gold on the temple that melted, and some of it melted its way into the cracks of the marble. So they busted the stones apart to get the gold out. Not one stone left upon another. Nothing. Nothing was left. And they carried off all the gold and precious stones that were to be found. They burned everything that could be burned and they raised it to the ground stone by stone. The ancient historian Josephus said that Jerusalem looked like it had never even been inhabited by the time that the Romans were finished with it. All that is to say, Jesus Christ, as he said he would, judged the nation that rejected him. And he did so in furious wrath and righteous anger. He did so as the enthroned Son of Man, as the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, just like he said he would. Let this be a warning to all. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no hope for salvation. Look at what happened to the nation of Israel. He will indeed save all who come to him in faith, trusting that he has done enough to save them in his life, death, and resurrection, but he will most severely judge for all eternity those who reject him. There is certainly salvation to those who come to him in faith, and there is certainly eternal punishment for those who do not. What happened to Jerusalem is a picture of the wrath of the Lamb. But there's something else to conclude from Jesus' prediction of the temple's destruction and its fulfillment. 
There are probably many things to conclude from this, but, but at least this, and this, will be, this won't be a shocker to anybody, Jesus is a true prophet. He's a true prophet. He's not just a prophet, right? We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. We're not uh, the heret- any heretical people that don't believe that he's God. But we confess often that he is our prophet, priest, and king, right? He is a true prophet. He's the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy, that there would come a prophet and that God would require it from anyone who didn't listen to the prophet. That's Jesus. He is a true prophet. What he said come to pa- came to pass. Nothing was left undone, not one thing. What does that mean then? Well, if he is a true prophet of God, then he is to be heeded on everything that he has said. He's to be believed in everything that he said. When he speaks, he speaks with the authority of God because with regard to his human nature, he has been commissioned and sent by God. And what else has he said? He said that he is God. That he is the Son of God of the same nature as the Father. He has said that he is the Messiah. God's chosen servant to save his, king, or save his people and establish his kingdom. He has said that he is the Savior. That it is through his death and resurrection that the forgiveness of sins is purchased for all who will believe on him. He's not just said those things. He's said a great many other things. And we are to believe them all. Why? Because he is a true prophet of God. More than a prophet for sure. But don't discount that. He is a true prophet. His words are true. And therefore he is to be listened to and believed in all things. Everything he said about everything is the truth. And this fulfilled prophecy is a proof of that. Brothers and sisters, I, I hope that in light of this, you can see some, 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 something from this point that is intensely practical for you. Theology is practical, right? It, it warms our hearts and, and, and all of that. But I mean, uh, real-world interactions, this is an extremely practical. When properly understood, the Olivet Discourse is a great apologetic tool for the Christian. When you understand that this discourse is not, at least up to this point, is not about the second coming of Christ, but is instead about the destruction of the temple, and that it would happen in the first century, and that Jesus predicted it 40 years beforehand to a T, and then that it happened just as Jesus said that it would, this is a home run in the defense of the faith. Absolutely it is. Here's what I mean if you're not following with me. How did he know that this was going to happen? Also, Mark was written sometime in the 50s A.D., written 20 years before it happened. The Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all contain a version of the Olivet Discourse, and they were all written and distributed before 70 A.D. So how in the world did Jesus know that this was going to happen? And how was this recorded decades before the fact? Answer, Jesus knew because he was a true prophet. And he should be listened to in all the other things that he says. And the scriptures recorded these things because they are the word of God. And God knows the future because he has ordained it. Properly understood, the Olivet Discourse screams to the world that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And it demonstrates the reliability of the Bible. And this encourages us and the people whom we engage with to believe what the Bible says about everything. God has proven himself trustworthy. He has vindicated his word. And Jesus has proven himself to be God. The scriptures attest to these things. Christian, use this. 
I'm serious. Use this stuff. As you engage with the unbelieving world, as, as someone says, yeah, the Bible is just a bunch of junk, take them to the Olivet Discourse and explain it to them and then say, now you tell, riddle me that. How did, how, how did we know that? How did we know that before it happened? Take them to the text. Show them that Jesus knew what would happen. Use this fulfilled prophecy. Use the Bible to show people that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And don't just use this on unbelievers you're engaging with. Use this on yourself. Let's keep it real for a second. I think that, and I'm not saying that it's not a sin, but let's just be honest with ourselves for a moment. Everyone doubts at some point, do we not? You've read something just rock. How do I even know this book is true? <laughs> it says a donkey talked. It does. Book of Numbers, read it. It says a serpent deceived the parents of all of humanity. That's in the first book. There are times when we're tempted to doubt. Use this apologetic on yourself. When you're doubting the truth of Scripture, remember Mark chapter 13. Remember that this prophecy undeniably came to pass in every way. Nothing was missed. And then use that to encourage yourself and remind yourself this book is true. Use this on yourself, not just in defense of the faith, but to encourage your own faith. The book is true, brothers and sisters. It is. And this is one proof of it for us. We indeed receive the word of God as the word of God because the spirit of God has attested to us that it is what it is. And that is subjective, right? But, it, but it's a real attestation to us that God gives us supernaturally. And I'm not denying any of that, but you can use this as well, evidentially. This is true. It's a fact of history. What Jesus said came to pass. The book is God's book. Jesus is God's son. And this leads us now to verse 31. And what is said here is very much related to what I've already said about verse 30. The Lord Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That'll preach by itself, won't it? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This sounds very much like Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, doesn't it? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus tells us here that his words will stand forever. Jesus' words are as certain as the word of God. How is that so? Because he is God. Because he is God. Not one of Jesus' words will fall to the ground. Not one syllable will go unfulfilled and without vindication. Not one. Every word of Christ proves true. Now, this definitely applies to the Olivet Discourse. That's the context. Jesus is affirming that what he has prophesied is absolutely rock, solidly certain. But it goes further than that, doesn't it? As we apply his words broadly, this is a general statement. All the words of Jesus are certain and sure. Again, his words are the words of God. He is God. And this then logically extends to the whole Bible, doesn't it? Jesus is God. The Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the scriptures are the words of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this book is going nowhere. This book will not pass away. And that's because Jesus' words will not pass away. Brothers and sisters, what seems, bear with me for a moment, what seems more stable and sure than the existence of heaven and earth? 
What, what seems more reliable than the ground under your feet and the sky above your head? They've always been there. They've always been there since creation. You trust that they'll be there tomorrow. They've been there your whole life. You take that for granted. We all do. Right? You don't ever wake up and wonder if heaven and earth will be there tomorrow. They're certain and they're sure realities. But here Jesus says his words are more sure than that. Heaven and earth will pass away before his words do. That is to say, his words will not pass away. His words are more sure than the fact that the ground will be stable tomorrow and that the sun will shine in the sky. Brothers and sisters, not one of his words will fall to the ground. What an encouragement to us. What an encouragement to us. Whatever Jesus has said, Whatever the Bible says is steadfast and sure. Whatever is threatened, steadfast and sure. Whatever is promised is certain. Whatever is proclaimed is certain. Whatever is said about the future is certain. Whatever is revealed is certain. The word of God, the word of Christ is steadfast and sure. Christian, stand upon it. It is a rock beneath your feet. It is solid ground for you to stand upon when the waves of life come crashing down upon you. It's a place for you to, to put your feet and set them when Satan is assaulting you. It's a place for you to hide and find shelter in the midst of a world that hates you. Stand upon it. Stand upon it. Believe it. It's certain. In the end, the word of God will prevail. In the end, every word will be vindicated. Stake your life on this book. If Jesus Christ says it, that settles it. Right? There, there's an old phrase, I don't know if it was Billy Graham. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Nonsense. God said it, that settles it. I don't care if you believe it or not. God said it, that settles it. Christ said it, that settles it. There is no more discussion, it's a done deal. He has spoken and when Christ has spoken, that is to say, God has spoken. Now, I'm sure that Jesus looked like a madman to the unbelievers who knew this prophecy. His prediction of, of Jerusalem being destroyed made its way to the Sanhedrin. Re read his trial. They talk about him, him claiming that the temple will be torn down. This prophecy went out. People knew. Not only that, but I'm sure the Christians, the early church, preached this prophecy. I'm sure that Jesus looked like a madman to the unbelievers who heard this prophecy. His words, I'm sure, seemed foolish right up until they came to pass. I'm sure he looked foolish to many until 70 AD came. And then, my brothers and sisters, came the vindication of our Lord. But get this, get this. Did the scoffing words of the unbeliever make the words of Christ any less true before they came to pass? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. My dear brothers and sisters, we may look like fools for holding fast to the word of God. We may look foolish to the world until the day we die and never receive vindication. They may mock and scoff and mistreat us just like they did Jesus and his apostles. But one day we will be vindicated. Why? Because heaven and earth may pass away but the words of Christ will never pass away. 
Brothers and sisters, do not let your confidence in the word of God be shaken by the world around you. In due time, you will be vindicated. Many like to look at us and say that we're on the wrong side of history. Who wrote history? And who has revealed a piece of it, the end piece of it, in his book? God has. We are on the right side of everything if we are on his side. Again, I say to you, in due time, we will be vindicated because God will vindicate his own word. All, every single man, woman, and child who has ever lived will one day acknowledge the word of God to be true, his gospel to be glorious, and Jesus Christ to be the true king and Lord of all. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is true. Stand on it and do not apologize. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of Christ will never pass away. At this time, I... I want to give one final thought before we end our time in Mark's gospel this morning. I want to come back to something that Jesus said in verse 28. And I would summarize it this way. The summer has come. The summer has come. Now, I'm not trying to make our Lord say anything. You're free to disagree with me here. If I'm getting the right doctrine from the wrong text, we can argue about that. What I'm about to say, I can defend from other portions of Scripture. But regardless, uh, Jesus used the language of summer coming to refer to what? The time of Jerusalem's judgment. That's, that's what he does. He uses the language of summer to refer to their judgment. And I don't want to make too much of that, but the language of summer is pleasant. It's much more pleasant than that of winter, and I don't believe in coincidences in Scripture. So hear me. The false Christs, Wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecution, preaching of the gospel, abomination of desolation, the Romans destroying Jerusalem, all of that was truly terrible. But as terrible as it all was, it was, in the words of Marcellus Kick, the heralds of the joys of summer. That's what it was. All of this destruction, all of this awfulness, they were the heralds of the joys of summer. The judgment of Israel meant the summer of the gospel for the world. No longer is the world in the death of winter and without Christ. No longer is the world in darkness and awaiting the light of the Messiah to dawn. Summer has come, and the warm light of the gospel sun has indeed begun to shine throughout the whole world. Things are growing. The church is growing throughout the world and has been for nearly 2,000 years. Again, as Paul said in Romans 11, the rejection of the Jews has meant life for the world. And then he goes on to say, and how much more will their full inclusion mean when God brings them into the church? It will be as life from the dead for the world. We are, hear me, some of you, some of you think that I'm a pessimist. We are living in a bright age overall. We are. To deny that, I believe, is to deny the word of God. Overall, we are living in a bright age. Yes, there are many dark things. Yes, there are many trials and pains to endure. I'm not burying my head in the sand, and I'm not trying to minimize any of that. But this age that we live in is nevertheless bright in that the summertime of the gospel age has dawned. The age of the Messiah has come, and the world is brighter for it. Satan has been bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations. That doesn't mean that he's not active at all anymore, but that means he can no longer deceive the nations like he did before Christ came. The world is brighter now. 
And it will continue to get brighter. And it will continue to get greener through the proclamation of the gospel and the blessing of God until our Lord Jesus returns. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And his reign began at his ascension. And the destruction of Jerusalem was proof that indeed he reigns. So then, in conclusion, my dear brothers and sisters, hold fast to the word of Christ and rejoice that it is summertime. The word of God is sure and certain and steady, and the gospel of God is shining brightly throughout the world. Be glad, Christian. In a world of shifting sand and uncertainty, you have a sure and certain word from God. And you are part of a kingdom that will never perish. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word for the encouragement that it gives us. We thank you for the words of Christ in the Olivet Discourse, how encouraging it is for us to know that he is a true prophet, that he's been vindicated in the judgment of the Jews. We thank you that your book is true. And we ask God that you would help us to rejoice in the fact that Christ is king and that his church will grow. And to rejoice in the fact that every word of your book will be vindicated. Help us to hold fast and help us to rejoice, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.